Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 4? The message this evening is a continuation from a study we began last week. There's enough of a history in this doctrine that it required some refreshment on the Bible's teaching and maybe hearing it for the first time. And so in our message this evening, we're going to work through the entire chapter, chapter number four. It's a long chapter. There's a lot going on, but it's, it's one large unit of thought. And so we're going to do our best not to get bogged down. And so in places where um, the text overlaps significantly with what we already talked about last week, we'll move a little bit quicker, spend a little more time on the subjects and the ideas that we weren't able to cover or weren't uh, part of our study last week. In a moment, we'll read through chapter number four, and I'll make a couple of comments before we begin, but would you go to the Lord with me right now in a time of prayer? Gracious God, we come to your word recognizing and knowing that these are the Holy Spirit's words. And these words are for us today. Would you grant us an understanding of it? I pray, Father, that what was in the heart and mind of the author by your Spirit's inspiration would enter into our hearts and our minds so that your thoughts become ours. Grant us grace for faith and for obedience. Lord, bring our church and our congregation into our eternal Sabbath rest. I pray that there would be not one person who fails to enter that rest. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Would you follow along in chapter 4 as I read? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The main points of this passage are pretty straightforward. They are on the surface. They're clear here in the text. It actually flows together very much like a compact sermon. It took, what, three minutes to read, but it's a very, very tightly wound sermon. In fact, many scholars today believe that the book of Hebrews is one long extended sermon, that this letter is actually a very good example of what preaching was like within the New Testament church. Not the evangelistic preaching we see in the book of Acts, but the kinds of teachings that would have been found in a gathering in the New Testament era. In verse number one, we have the author's main point or thesis. It's the need for entering the rest stated for us. It'd be the same way that Pastor Joe often at the beginning of his messages on Sunday morning says, the main point of the message is this. That's exactly what the author does. Then in verses 2 through 10, verses 2 through 10, we have that main point explained and proved to us from the scriptures, which again is exactly what we strive to do in a sermon. We give the main point and then we show where in the Bible we got that main point. That's what the author does. He specifically uses Psalm 95 as his text, and that's been his primary text all the way from chapter number three, but he also finds support for his thesis in the creation account of Genesis, as well as the entrance of the Israelites into the promised land. And then finally, in verses 11 through 14, 11 through the end, uh, really beyond verse 14, all the way to the end of the chapter, we are given a call to action, and he gives us specific instruction or application on how to obey. He repeats his main thesis in verse number 10, then he gives his primary application, and he gives us the specifics of how to follow through with with his main point on on what he wants us to do. Now, our goal this evening is not to mess with that. He's he's laid it out beautifully and perfectly. We're not going to do anything differently. We're going to do, by God's grace, what the Spirit-inspired author already does. But we are going to spend a little more time than he does on it, because we will not be done in three minutes. Um, This outline this evening is going to follow the same flow of thought. But what we're going to be doing is we're just going to ask four questions and allow the text to answer those questions as we move through. Question number one will be this. With the the thesis stated that we need to enter the Sabbath rest, and we talked in great detail last week about what that Sabbath rest is. Question number one, how great is the need for the rest? Relative importance in Christian knowledge and truth, how important is this? Number two, what is the rest exactly? We'll move a little bit quicker through that, but we'll spend a little more time on the analogy to Israel. And again, we discussed that in great detail last week, and I'd refer you to to what we said there. So how great is the need for the rest? Number two, what is the rest? Question number three, what characterizes a person who fails to obtain the rest? 
What characterizes a person who fails to obtain this rest? And then question four, what resources are available to us to help us enter the rest? What resources are given to us in our pursuit of this rest? And I'll say those again as we come to them, but let's go ahead and move through this first question. How great is the need for the rest? Is this a big deal, little deal, medium? I want us to note four truths from this passage that answer this question and give us an idea of the relative importance of the subject. The first thing we need to know from this text is that whatever this rest is, it goes to the heart of our purpose for existence and our relationship with God. This rest goes to the very heart of the reason that we live and breathe. It goes to the very heart of our very relationship with God. Look with me again at verses 3 through 5 in chapter 4. Look at what he says. For those who have believed, for we who have believed, we enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although, then it's putting the words in the mouth of the Lord, and the Lord's works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse number four. For he somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, from this text, verses 3 through 5, we realize that the importance of this rest is that it goes to the very purpose of our existence and our relationship with God. Because notice that this is God's very rest from creation. Whatever the rest is, it's the same rest experienced by God on the seventh day of creation. We discussed this at some length last week, but... uh, Uh, In chapter number two of Genesis, we saw that the rest on the seventh day of creation is the rest of the culmination of God's creative work. It's not the kind of rest such that God was doing things but is no longer doing things. It's the rest that marks the completion of his mission. And the mission was to create a universe and a world in which there would be image bearers And that this God would enter into a covenant relationship of fellowship with these image bearers. And so whatever the rest is, it is that same rest that we see in the book of Genesis on the seventh day of creation. But we also see, number two, is that those who enter this rest actually rest with God. Look at verse number 10 in chapter number 4. It says this, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. When we rest, the rest is not just like God's rest, it is God's rest. It's the same rest which God began in the seventh day of creation and continues in until now. And God is working throughout history to bring people into that rest with him. It's not an analogy, it is that rest. Now, to cease from personal works... And enter into God's rest, I believe, means entrance into a fellowship with God that is devoid of self-reliance and instead rests wholly on God's grace to provide for every necessary condition of the relationship. In other words, when we enter rest, we enter into something, kind of a relationship in which God provides everything for the relationship. This was true even pre-fall, I believe. So instead of seeking rest through Anything that I can do or provide, I rest with God in fellowship with him on the basis of his work, not my own. That's God's rest. 
That's one reason that this is actually quite an important doctrine or concept. What's the relative importance? How great is the need for this rest? It's very great. It goes to the very heart of our relationship with God and our purpose for existence. But it is also important because the writer tells us that the idea of failure should cause fear. The idea of failure to enter the rest should cause fear. It's right there in verse number one. Look down at verse number one. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, this word fear isn't a special word in the Greek for fear. It's a very ordinary word for fear. It means to be afraid. The point of it, though, is not that you and I should be sinfully paralyzed by this kind of a fear, We shouldn't be sinfully controlled by it, but rather what the author is encouraging in us is a very rational and holy fear that comes from an appropriate, a right understanding of our position. A person who stands on the edge of a cliff should have a rational fear of falling. You think about the times maybe in your household with children or grandchildren, and if you don't have kids, you've seen this happen. It's when there is a hot stove and the child has, for reasons unknown to mankind, pulled a chair to the stove, has stood on the chair, and is reaching the hand out towards the heat of the stove. And you see it, and you can't cross that distance in time. So what do you do? You yell at the child very loudly. And the child turns and looks at you, their eyes get really wide, and the crying just starts. And they run to you because they're just, you freaked them out so badly. But their hand is no longer over the flame. The child has no concept of the danger that they're in. And so to make them aware, you inspire some fear in them that where they are is precarious. This is what the author is encouraging us to do. It gives you a concept of the relative importance. How great is the need for entering this rest? Well, it is so great that we should fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. But number three, failure to obtain this rest incurs the very wrath of God. Just a few verses before our chapter in in Hebrews 3.17, if you could look back there, it says, And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And then if you skip down to verse 3 of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 3, For we who believe have entered that rest, as he has said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That phrase is repeated over and over again. Given the weight of what is at stake in the rest, we need to take this concept as seriously as the author does. Then the fourth clue that gives us an idea of its relative importance is that the nature of the rest, whatever it is, should motivate diligence in our effort to enter. We're going to see this a little more clearly later on, but just note that in verse number 11, we are exhorted therefore to strive to enter that rest. The word strive means to be zealous, to take pains, to make every effort. Friends, whatever this rest is, it concerns your very relationship with God and whether or not you stand in relationship to him in wrath or in grace. That's how important the need for entering this rest is. 
second question, first is how great is the need for this rest? The second question is, quite simply, what is the rest then? What is it? We did discuss this quite a bit last week. So firstly, just as a reminder, remember that it is God's rest. We've talked about that already. But number two, it was available to the Israelites in the promised land. We haven't really touched on this yet at all. So let's, let's take a little more time and, and dig into this. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 16. This is really where the thought begins. There's kind of a seamless transition between chapter 3 into chapter 4, even though they deal with largely different concepts. Chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. Therefore, in our passage, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Verse number two, for good news came to us, justice to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here we are given teaching from God's history of redemption to help us understand the nature of this rest. Now the writer gives us several truths about the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings in the Pentateuch that parallel our own context. And so let me give you those parallels as we see them here in this passage. Number one, both we and the Israelites were given good news. The Israelites were given good news. The the word there is gospel. It is euangelion. They were preached a gospel, the gospel. What was the good news that they received? Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, the Lord promises this. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What an incredible promise of grace to an undeserving people that God's promise of good news was that he would bring them into a land all their own, that he would live with them in open fellowship there. Isn't that exactly what God intended to do with Adam and Eve in Eden? Isn't that exactly what we discovered was the purpose of God's rest last week in the book of Genesis? Israel had good news preached to them. Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 8 God tells Moses that I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the author's point in Hebrews is to tell us that the Israelites had good news preached to them. The good news was that God was entering into a gracious covenant with them and was going to give them a land. And the author wants us to see a parallel with ourselves. We have had good news preached to us. We have had a gracious relationship with God promised to us, to everyone who trusts in his Messiah. However, in the story of the Israelites, the Israelites did not believe the promises of God. That gospel which they heard, they rejected those promises. In fact, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 16, verse 13, the people came to Moses and said this. I want you to listen carefully. 
They say, is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us? What wickedness. Rather than trust the promises of God, the Israelites made a conscientious, conscious choice to disbelieve the promises of God such that they, with their words out loud, said that they preferred bondage of slavery in Egypt as their inheritance. Brothers and sisters, we have been promised much by a good and gracious God. More than just a land on this earth, has he not promised us a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth? A river of life? Friends, has he not promised to drive away every tear from our eyes? Every doubt, every sorrow, every pain, so that we would live in eternal prosperity in open fellowship with him Would you rather have this world as your inheritance or the one to come? How many of us through our actions and perhaps even in the thoughts of our heart have preferred the milk and honey of Egypt rather than the rest to come? Isn't it much easier to place value in what we have seen rather than what we have not seen? Isn't it much easier to look back from where we've come and see a clearer path than the one on which we are currently treading? The answer to that question in your heart will be decided on the basis of whether or not you count God worthy of your trust. There's a reason that God did not allow Israel to see Canaan from Egypt. There's a reason he's not allowed you to see heaven before you reach it. Because the relationship is based on your trust in God. It's based on your faith in the promises of God. Thankfully, not everybody in Israel was like this, though it was characteristic of that whole generation. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 reads this, By faith... Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, the Israelites didn't just fail to get a piece of land that God wanted to give them. In rejecting the land, the Israelites rejected a relationship with God himself that was based on faith in God's power. The Israelites rejected their very relationship with God by refusing to believe his promises. And so that story then becomes an illustration here in the book of Hebrews for the author to say something even more serious is happening right now. We as Christians have a clearer revelation, greater promises, a greater Christ and Savior, and a greater deliverance because of that, the responsibility on our shoulders is even greater to believe the promises of God and so enter into his rest. We also need to understand that 
the nature of this rest remains a possibility for every generation. The rest is not something that's in the past. That's the point that the author is trying to make in verses 6 through 9. Let's just look at that again. Let's glance at that together. Verses 6 says, "Since Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, and by implication... Today is literally every day, because that's how the author's interpreting Psalm 95, that that today is applicable in every generation of God's people. And so, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse number eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You see, he doesn't view Psalm 95 as merely the words of David, but as spirit-inspired words. God was promising a future rest through David, and David lived hundreds of years afterwards. So even though the Israelites did eventually enter into the land, David, in the Holy Spirit, recognized that something still lacked in the rest that they currently were in possession of. There was something still to come that had not been fulfilled merely by the capture of Jerusalem or bringing the ark into the the temple. The author here believes that the promise of rest is still held out to you and to me Not to enter into a physical land, because that was done, but to enter into a true and lasting, guaranteed rest with God that's based on Christ's finished work. And so to make that point again, he says that we enter into this rest by faith. That's verse number two into verse number three. And he also tells us that this rest, even though we've begun in faith, is not fully realized yet. It's consummated in glory. We talked about that quite a bit last week. It's an already but not yet kind of an idea. And so here's the definition. What is the rest? Here's the rest, I believe, from this passage of Scripture. The rest of this passage is the rest of full, open, eternal fellowship with God. The kind of fellowship as between a creator and a creature. Image and image bearer. And so when we enter into the rest, we enter into the relationship of mutual love and fellowship for which we were created, and in which God delighted on the seventh day of creation. Which means that the rest from which we, or the work from which we cease, is every effort to find purpose, fellowship, and acceptance on our own, apart from God's promises. We enter into rest on the basis of faith in God's promises, not our own effort. That's what will carry us through. So, First question, how great is the need for this rest? Question number two, what is the rest? Question three, what characterizes a person who's on the path to failing or a failure to enter into that rest? Two points, very simple. You could tell me more than likely. First is that a person is on the path to not entering into that rest if they're not united by faith to the message. An unbelieving heart brothers and sisters, is the greatest danger to your soul. It would be foolish of you to think that faith is like an object that you keep with you in your pocket like your phone or your wallet. We often think that faith is something that we have and we keep with us every day, and as long as we move about our day with faith in our pockets, we're doing pretty good Christian living. But faith is not a static thing, like a phone that I just carry around with me, and it relatively remains unchanged from day to day. It's not an inanimate object, it's a dynamic object. It's something that grows and shrinks. Faith is more like a balloon 
that, that expands in the warm air under the sun and then shrinks in the dark and in the cold. Friends, your faith grows in the light and warmth of intimate fellowship with God, and it shrinks and diminishes in the cold of your willpower and shallowness of Bible study and prayer and minimal fellowship with believers. This faith is not something that is just assumed. This faith is something that is changing on a daily basis, either to grow in the light of who God is and his promises, or else to shrink because of your neglect of them. The second characteristic of someone who's on the path to failing to enter that rest, somebody who follows an example of disobedience, because he uses these terms almost interchangeably. In the one part of the chapter, he says they weren't united by faith with the message, and in another part, he says they fell because they were disobedient. I think he says this because it's not always easy to see the quality of your faith. Now, the Bible tells us there are two remedies. If you're a person, you're like, it's hard for me to tell. Is my faith growing? Is it shrinking? The Bible says there are two ways to know. The one is, how do you respond in trials? That's not really dealt with here, but it's dealt with throughout the New Testament. Trials are a test for whether or not our faith is genuine. 1 Peter 1. However, the quickest and most efficient method, if you, know, you don't have time to wait for a trial, is to see whether or not a person's faith is real by examining the quality and consistency of obedience. If you love Christ, you'll keep his commands. Disobedience is always a result of a lack of faith. You disobey what you know because you didn't trust God to tell you the truth in the first place. So the writer can use these concepts of unbelief and disobedience almost interchangeably. The disobedience of the Israelites was a result, a direct result of not believing the promises of God. And friends, in the same way, you cannot be a true believer without that faith that you claim to have coming out in your life in some way, in some vital and active way. With what we've seen regarding the similarities between Israel and us at this point, you might be thinking something on, along the lines of, well, if Israel had such good news preached to them and they failed to enter into that rest, what hope is there for me? Or what resources are available to me that they didn't have? If I do the exact same experiment twice, why would I expect it to turn out any differently? What's different about this time around that will yield different results? What resources according to this chapter, have been given to you for entrance into that rest. I want us to see four resources in the time remaining which God has given us for entrance into that rest. And the first is the word of God. Look with me again. Verse number 12. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The question with the word of God as a resource is this. Is this a resource of grace or an instrument of judgment? The idea of a sword could give the indication that maybe this is actually some sort of a threat of judgment used to motivate us. Now, just just for a moment, don't run to Ephesians 6 to figure this out. 
Because in Ephesians 6, there's a dramatic difference. In the armor of God, you know, the sword of the Spirit, what does it do? It's good for defeating the principalities and powers because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. In that passage, the word of God is compared to a sword with which to fight against spiritual forces that attack us. But here in this chapter, we're the ones being cut up. So is this sword then just an extension of God's punishment like he punished Israel in the wilderness? I don't think so. I believe that in this context, the word of God is a gracious resource rather than a threat of judgment. I want to show you why. Number one is that in this whole chapter, the preacher's expectation is that his hearers have entered into that rest by faith, unlike the Israelites. He draws a contrast between the Israelites who were not united by faith to the message and you and I, who presumably, he believes, have been united by faith to the message. Doesn't mean that all of his hearers were believers, but his expectation was that the people who were hearing this had been united by faith to the message. So there's a distinct difference there between the judgment that fell on the Israelites and what the preacher believes is true of us. Secondly, the preacher is writing specifically so that no one will fail to enter or fall away from the living God. And then the third, and I think this is the most telling, is that the metaphor here between the word of God and the sword extends to the function of the sword, which is the function of piercing. What do you do with a sword? You stab. And with the word of God, it does the same function. It pierces or it stabs. But that's where the metaphor ends. Because where the two paths diverge is in their purpose. The sword's purpose is to kill. But the purpose of the word is to discern and to expose. It is an extension of God's sovereign omniscience. God who knows everything uses his sword of the word to expose what's going on in your heart. God mercifully exposes us now through the word so that when we stand before him in the judgment talked about in the very next verse in verse number 13, the eyes of him to whom we must give account, God exposes us now through the word so that when we stand before him on judgment day, that exposure will not be an occasion of terror and regret and surprise, but rather of joy and confidence in the mercy of God. The word graciously brings judgment day to us today through the preaching of the gospel. Now, not everybody responds properly to this word because, remember, the message is useless unless it's met with faith in the hearers. But for those who believe, the word has a sanctifying effect of mercifully exposing us before God's searching knowledge to sanctify us so that we do come to the rest. So let me give you a couple of exhortations from this. Number one, submit to the searching of the word every single day. You desperately need this word to continually cut into you and expose you for the good of your soul. Exhortation number two, in your study of the word, pursue both knowledge and application. You need devotional material regularly with your life because you need to come to a more intimate fellowship and a more glorious view of your great God who loves you. But you also need to grow in your understanding of the Bible itself. So push yourself in your research and your theology and your understanding of Scripture. Two exhortations. The second resource that we're given is the spiritual fellowship of believers. 
We don't have time, but you go through the book of Hebrews, do a word search, find out how many times the exhortation, the subjunctive, the, the, the let us passages, lots and lots. There's at least one, two, three, four, just in chapter number four, um, and they all have to do with this concept of corporate fellowship because here's the point. Number one, you and I have the care for each other spiritually. Coming to the rest is something we do together. Number two, there's something we have together spiritually that we don't have on our own. We should be fearing together. We should be striving together. Why? Lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It would be a tragedy for us to come to glory and one of you not be there with us. Friends, as pastors, there is no greater burden on the shoulders of pastors than that some of the professing membership of the congregation would be actually unbelievers. Nothing is a scarier thought than that there are people in these pews who are without Christ. We must have the spiritual fellowship of believers, and we can't be content with anything less than spiritual fellowship because that's one of the very resources that brings us to Sabbath rest. Then the third resource that we have is that of earnest prayer. Would you look with me at verses 14 to 16? It says this, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Go down to verse number 16. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me give you a couple of applications from this. You and I are exhorted to come to the Lord in earnest prayer to find the resources necessary. God has ordained that you not come to Sabbath rest apart from the ministry of prayer. You must come to the Lord to find the mercy and grace that you need. And God has ordained that that be one of the means by which he brings you to glory. Friends, the purpose and requests of our prayers speaks to our perception of our greatest need. You pray the most about what you believe is your greatest need. Do you pray the most regarding the preservation of your faith till glory? The urgency of your prayers reveals your perception of the urgency of the need. Friends, we're told to come confidently before the throne of grace. But it is a lie that confidence before the Lord looks like unconcerned prayer. We must come to the Lord with great strivings because we know that if any help comes, it will only come through him. The reason we don't come often is because we often come to the throne of our own sovereignty, believing we will find grace to help in our time of need through the resources we control. You pray early and you pray often. You pray with earnestness how the Lord has commanded us to do it. The fourth resource, greater than every one we've discussed previously. There's so much more to meditate on and to say. But the fourth resource we have to bring us to glory is the effective ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, all the way back in chapter number three, we learned that the Lord Jesus is more effective at leading his people than Moses. Moses stayed behind while the people of Israel marched on ahead without him. But in chapter number four, at the end of this long section, we learned that while we are pressing on to our Sabbath rest, Jesus has already passed through the heavens and gone on before us. Christ has led the way. 
much more effectively than Moses ever could. He's more effective than Joshua, who could only keep sin at bay for his own generation. But Christ lives eternally as a high priest. His eternal resurrection life guarantees the salvation and the conquering of sin for all time. He's more effective than Aaron, who himself needed intercession and had to make sacrifices first for himself and then for the people. But Christ offers perfect prayers for all of you. He knows you by name. He counts you as a brother or sister and goes before the father of both of you on your behalf. And the father has never yet said no to any one of the requests of your high priest, Jesus Christ. How can you have confidence that you will come to glory when the Israelites did not? You can have confidence because Jesus is so much greater than every other resource and leader that the Israelites ever had. Everything that Christ is and everything that Christ does guarantees that when we expose ourselves to the word of God and allow it to search us, when we experience the fellowship of believers in our spiritual lives and our walk, that when we go to the Lord daily, often, first, in earnest prayer for the grace and mercy we need for the preservation of our souls, we know that these things will finally bring us to glory because Jesus so much greater in the salvation he brings and provides is effective. Friends, confidently make use of these resources. I pray that God would bring us all to that rest one day and we'll rejoice with him together for eternity. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity for a few minutes to consider your words tonight. Would you bless us as we go? I pray, Father, that what you've given to us for the preservation of our souls to enter this rest We would make use of every day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all very much. You're dismissed.